What does it take to make you happy? What is it? Well, I want to read you from Psychology Today, a survey of 52,000 people, just like you and I, from 15 to 85 years old. This is where this study was taken from, extensive study. And they were asked, what makes you happy? And these are the responses given by the world around us, is in the order. Number one was friends and a social life. That was number one. Number two, a job or primary role or activity. Three, being in love. Four, recognition and success. Five, a good sex life. Six, personal growth. Seven, good financial situation. Eight, having a house and apartment, being attractive and beautiful, health and physical condition, the city you live in, my religion, recreation and exercise, being a parent, marriage, and lastly, your partner's happiness. (laughs) Terrible. Now, I don't know whether you realize that most of these things rely on external events, external circumstances. And it's interesting to me that the popular idea, as evidenced by that survey, that the idea of happiness is having the right external circumstances. And that's a real contrast to what Jesus just said on the Sermon on the Mount, or the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes. You see, because all of those things that we just read depend upon what I call the when and then thinking. You might want to remember this. The when and then thinking. It is a trap. It goes like this. When I have finished school, then I'll be happy. When I get a job, then I'll be happy. When I leave this job, I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. And when the kids leave home, then I'll be happy. <laughs> Why is there a lot more laughter than the last one? <laughs> now, there is a classic chapter. I want you to note this chapter. I haven't written it down for you, but it's Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 through 26. Now, later on today, you need to go home and read this. This is the classic chapter on a search for happiness. The classic, the one in the Bible that is all about the search for happiness. Now, the man who wrote this was a man named Solomon, and he had a lot. And he searched, he tried everything searching for happiness. In fact, I'll just read you verse 1 of that chapter. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up and turn to chapter 1. Sorry, uh, verse 1. And in the Good News Version, it says, I decided, listen to what he says here, I decided... To enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. So there he is, Solomon, who had a stack of resources, a a, a very preferential position, deciding, I'm going to enjoy myself and I'm going to find out what happiness is all about. And you can go home again and say, and read part of that Bible and save yourself. The reason why I say go read it is it will save you a whole bunch of time, a whole bunch of heartache, and a whole bunch of money. So that's like your coupon for the day. 
Go redeem it. <laughs> I'm saving you a stack of time. Right there. I hope you took the, the reference to it. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 through 26. Go home, read that. Now, Solomon tried it all. And effectively, I've summarized this. I, somebody said it today, Barry, I love simple. Now, simple is not simplistic. Simple is clear. Simple is clear. He discovered, he tried it all, and he discovered there are three major, listen to this carefully, friends, dead ends. Dead ends that you're going to encounter in life. And let me just knit them all up for you, and then I'm going to go back and touch on them quickly. One of them is accumulating things. Then he found another dead end. He was experiencing all the pleasures of life, and the third is a so-called achieving, quote, success. The reason why I drill on this today and get some focus on this is because we spend nearly all of our lives chasing these three things. And he says, whoa, 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 stop, guys. I'm your friend. I have driven down this road. It is a dead end. Reverse the car. This is not the right way. He says all three, he had all three, Solomon did. He had all a stack of riches. He had tried all kinds of experiences. And he was a very successful man in his, di- in his time. But he says all three of these are dead ends. It is not the way it is a dead end. And the Bible says you don't find happiness in accumulating things. And we think to ourselves, well, if I could just win the lotto, oh, then I'd be happy. Somebody once asked Howard Hughes, how much does it take, this is a famous interview, you go read it for yourself, he says, how much does it take to make a man happy? And this man had billions, and that's spelt with a capital B. Billions. You know what he said? Just a little bit more. That that man died in terrible circumstances alone and in a tragic way. See, TV lies. Let me say it again. TV lies. You cannot buy happiness. The problem is, friends, the thrill wears off. Has anybody experienced that? Can I see your hands, please? Put your hands up if you've experienced the thrill wears off. Okay. Everybody who was down there, just take a look around. Everybody knows that the thrill wears off. So why do we chase these things? With such focus and energy and dogged determination. When Solomon's saying, I had way more money than all of us put together, and it's a waste of time. It's a dead end. It will not give you happiness that lasts the thrill is on. Secondly, he says experiencing pleasure. Now, we Kiwis are almost innovators in this theme. I'm bored, so let's just jump off a bridge with a rope tied to our foot. <laughs> Whether it's zorbing or bungee jumping, whatever. Or, you know, our escape for the weekend. Always looking for that experience. You know, I found you can go and sit on the beach. Let's change. Aitotaki. Rarotonga. And that's very nice for a week or two. But after a while... You realize you come back and you've got you've to get on with life. See, it doesn't last. And you wouldn't want it to last on that beach in Ayatataki because you are built for more than sitting down consuming resources and taking up space. You are built for a purpose. You'd be off track on that. 
Solomon says, I experienced it all. He built vast cities and all sorts of things. And then achieving success. And that says, well, if I can get people to look up to me, then I will be happy. That's what that says. Solomon ruled an empire. He had slaves up the wazoo. But that did not bring him happiness. So look at his conclusion in verse 17. If you've got your Bibles open there. He says, all of it is meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. You never quite catch it. You think you do, but it just keeps moving. And in the, let me be clear about this. In the kingdom of heaven, please listen to this. Wealth, power, and possessions are unimportant. Kingdom people seek different priorities and blessings. They have a different attitude to those things. A different attitude. So the popular idea in the world as we've seen is that happiness is having the right circumstances. But God's way to happiness is having the right attitude. That's the next film. Matthew 5, verse 3 through 12. The opening statements and the opening lines of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that Kevin has just read to us. They are eight positive statements about happiness called the Beatitudes. Now, it is very interesting to me that Jesus, and I've been on that hell, when he sat there and he looked at, and he looked at all the crowds, he chose of all subjects he could have chosen to speak on. He could have chosen anything. He chose the subject of happiness. Why would he do that? I'll tell you why I think of this. Because he knew everybody is actually searching for deep down happiness. But he knew that very few actually find it. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They need somebody to show them the way. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at eight attitudes... Jesus' principles for personal happiness. Jesus' principles for emotional health and growth. Emotional health. And each of these eight attitudes begins with an old English word, blessed or blessed. Now that word literally means to be happy. In fact, if you've got the Amplified Version, it says this. It says, blessed, happy, to be envied. To be envied. It is that much. It is happy. You know, you happy, happy, happy. That's why we're calling this, uh, this sermon series. Don't worry. Be happy. Because that's exactly what Jesus said. Don't worry. Be happy. That is very countercultural. And the reason why he said that, because remember, relating back to the last series, he was looking for the invisible. Happy are you if you are poor in spirit, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And happy are you who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you spot something there? They sound a little bit to me like contradictions. Did you see that? Happy you are poor in spirit. Happy? Happy you who are persecuted. Happy? Happy you if you are rejected. That doesn't sound like happiness to me. Does it to you? See the contradiction? What Jesus was trying to get a cross here is simply this that you need to learn to be happy in spite of your circumstances in fact if you have to have all of your problems solved before you are happy will you be happy no not at all this is not heaven friends this is earth if you have to have everything perfect in your life before you are happy, you will be miserable for the rest of your life. I heard an amen down here somewhere. Jesus is saying, I want to teach you that my happiness is not determined by what's happening around me, but by what's happening in me. My, let me say it again, my happiness is not determined by what's happening around me, but what's happening in me. Then these make sense. Go on. So the next eight weeks, we're going to look at what it means when Jesus is saying, happiness doesn't depend, listen carefully, on what we have. It does not. Some of the most beautifully happy, wonderful delightful, winsome people I've ever met have not got a cracker to their name. Anybody met anybody like that? And some of the most miserable, cantankerous, ungrateful, stroppy, selfish people have got more than you and I can poke a stick at. And then there's those in the middle who are envying those who are going to poke a stick at, but they're going the wrong direction. So Jesus is saying, happiness does not depend upon what we have, it depends on what you are. It doesn't depend upon the atmosphere outside. It's the attitudes inside. Attitude is a small thing that makes a huge difference. Huge difference. And I believe today the Holy Spirit wants to say to every one of us, I want to give you an attitude adjustment. Happiness does not depend upon external circumstances. It depends upon internal attitudes. And your attitude determines your altitude. If you're flying low, check your attitude. These are the attitudes. Friends, happiness is a choice. You may want to write that down. Why do I know that? Because Jesus says, I have given you everything you need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. You've got it. You have my Holy Spirit living within you already. The seal of the deposit. Have you forgotten these things? An attitude adjustment. 
Happiness is a choice. You are about as happy or sad as you choose to be. And if you're somewhere in between, you're choosing to be there. Now, I get it that life has very challenging circumstances and times. And there are a lot of things in my life and probably in your life that don't go as I wished. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. They don't go our way. But our happiness in the middle of that depends upon our attitudes. Let me tell you one of the reasons why. And I haven't really seen your outline, but you may want to just note this down. Proverbs 12, 25. Worry can rob you of happiness. That's what it says. Proverbs 12, 25 in the Good News Version. So let's work that backwards. If you want happiness, quit worrying. Don't worry, be happy. That's where I got the title for this series from. Don't worry, be happy. Be happy, don't worry. That's what he's saying. Briefly today, I want to look at the very first step on the very first attitude. Just very briefly. And I want us to read this next verse aloud together. So if you can just pop it up, Chris, that would be great. Thanks, mate. Let's read this aloud together with enthusiasm. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does poor in spirit mean? Now, it's not talking about low self-esteem. Woe is me. I am a worm. (laughs) Nobody loves me. I'm junk. Hold on. God does not make junk. He makes masterpieces. And one of them, he never makes anything a duplicate. And is that fancy to you, Mike? Mike specializes in mass production of very intricate parts. God only ever makes individuals. You are one of a kind. One. Nobody else is like you. You are absolutely unique. So don't give me this, I am nothing. You were made by an incredible craftsman who not only made you unique, he sent his only son for you. That immediately imputes value to you. Holy moly, you take one of my sons, I have to sacrifice him for you. You better be worth something. You know what I'm saying? Same for your daughters. So when God sent Jesus to die for you, that immediately raised your value through the roof. So we're not talking about that. Don't give me this low self-esteem, poor me. And it's certainly not talking about putting yourself down. You know what? As I search the scriptures, God has this amazing ability to correct without condemning. Big difference. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Let me give you a real simple definition. It means to depend on God alone. Not full of yourself. Being very aware of your own shortcomings, yes. Jesus is talking here about humility. Admitting that I don't have it all together. That is so easy for me to do. I have not got it all together. Jesus is talking about the attitude, I haven't arrived. And I'm certainly not perfect. Now the opposite of this will be arrogance. Egotism. That's the opposite of being poor in spirit. 
He knows you're full of yourself. All depends upon me. I'm the God of my own universe. The Bible says in the Good News Version, happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. They know they need for God. They know they need to depend upon God. Now the point is, Jesus is starting off with happy and humble are twins. They go together. Humility and happiness go together. Now, if you want to have lasting happiness, you need to learn to be humble. How does that work? Well, how does humility increase my happiness? There are three effects. What I want to do is I want to look at briefly um, two of them and then dwell on the last one, which is the most important. Number one, humility will reduce your stress. Write that down. When I'm humble, I don't have to have all the answers. And I can immediately resign as a general manager of the universe. Thinking that everything depends upon me. That's a nice stress reliever. Friends, God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. When I'm humble, I don't have to play God and assume responsibility for things that really aren't mine to assume responsibility for. Hmm? And I certainly... when don't have to pretend that I'm perfect. That's a great stress relief. I can be, I am what I am. Now, I also can live, when I'm humble, with a tension between the real, what actually is, and the ideal. I can live in that tension between the real and the ideal, and I'm at peace in that. Because I'm depending upon God. Humility accepts the fact that you can be happy because you're depending upon God, even though things aren't ideal. You know what that means. Even though things aren't going particularly well with your job, and you may not even have the best job, you can live with that tension. Or your marriage may not be perfect. You can live with it. You know, actually, I've never met anybody that had a perfect marriage. And if they did, I'd be counseling them for pride and lying. We all need to work on those things. But I am convinced we take ourselves way too seriously. And God not seriously enough. We need to reverse that. You see, when we're trying to impress people with who we are, the outward, the impression management type of deal, but yet deep inside, we know who we really are and who we want to be, that can create stress. So when I become a humble person and I walk in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it reduces stress in my life. And here's how this works. As the stress goes down, the happiness rises. Number two. Humility improves my relationships. Yeah. Now, be honest. I want to take a quick test here. Who of you sitting here today loves to be around big heads? Yeah? Yeah, right. Not good. You know, let's go to, a, let's go to lunch with a conceited jerk at work. Yeah? <laughs> who's always telling you his great exploits. It's kind of like people who talk about the stock market. They always tell you about their wins, never tell you about their losses. <laughs> be careful. Don't be sucked in by that. They're not being honest with you. They, they shade the truth. 
Or they tell you about their, you know, their sales, whatever. You know, hey, now looking at each other. Quit pointing there. Down there. <laughs> Prideful people are a pain in the blessed assurance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Self-centered people are an irritation. It's all about them. They wreck relationships. Because here's why. Self-centered people are never happy. Never happy. There's always something to whine about, groan about, whinge about, be ungrateful about. On the other hand, how many of you people love to be around humble people? Oh, that's a breath of fresh air. They're not always talking about themselves. Ever had one of those conversations? Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm glad you asked. Well, and they take a huge breath and for the next three hours... When you're humble, you get along better with other people. You know, because you don't have to be right all the time and proving your point. Now, please, you may want to write this down. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of others. That's a definition of humility. And when you become interested in others, you become more interesting to others. If you have a problem at the moment and you think that people, quite frankly, sometimes don't like you, you become interested in them. And this is how you can tell. You are either giving information in a conversation or you are seeking information. Or you're qualifying. I'll just keep it at two. Giving or seeking. Check how many questions you're asking about that other person's life to show your interest. That's how you show interest. Not making a constant commentary. Ask questions. Draw it out of them. And when you become interested in others, you'll become interesting to others. And it will give you better relationships. The art of asking questions is a dying art. And when, then when you humble like that, it becomes easier for to say, say those two hard words. I'm sorry. Improves the relationship. Or the three hard words. I was wrong. Or the three hardest words. I need your help. When you're humble. But I've also noticed when we are prideful friends, we bruise easily. When we're prideful, we bruise easily. But when we're humble and we're walking with the Lord, just being who we are, we're far more immune to insults. We don't get easily offended because we're not trying to defend everything and prove everything. So if you find somebody, even one of your children or your grandchildren or even yourself, who is very sensitive to criticism, it's because they haven't learned this first principle of happiness, and that is to be humble before the Lord. Number three, and I want to dwell on this the most. Humility releases God's power in your life. I'm interested in that. Very interested in that. In fact, I want to read together this next verse from James chapter 4 and verse 6. Let's read it aloud. God gives to the humble, but 
let's just take that verse. Get some clarity on that. Do you want God to set himself against you? If you don't, you need to be humble. God gives grace to the humble. But he's opposed to the proud, as some other versions say. So this, this is the secret of spiritual power. God's strength is to walk humbly before the Lord and to realize that you have to depend upon him. Not just charging ahead with your own plans. The lesson God is speaking to is here. The key to strength is to admitting my weakness. I don't know God, but you do. The key to power is admitting helplessness. Lord, I'm helpless over the situation, but you are sovereign. The key to happiness is humility. The key to freedom is not fighting, but it's surrender to Jesus. And the key to independence is dependence upon God. Because the Bible says, happy are those who know their need for God. Do you know your need for God again? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's a um, Philip's translation. Notice the promise there. All God has to offer is available to the person who walks humbly before him. And the fact is today, every one of us needs Jesus Christ in our lives. And his power is freely available and waiting to be poured out in you. But you must admit your need for him and ask him. And when you walk before the Lord, say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And apart from him, I can do nothing. Let me put in the brackets what is implying there. Of lasting value. Or we can spin our wheels and use up energy and use up time in our lives, doing all sorts of distractions. But apart from him, I can do nothing. He is the source of the meaning and the purpose to our lives. And when you have that attitude, then God will give you the supernatural power to do the things that he wants you to work on. Problems that you have tried to change, but you can't. He'll give you that power. Areas of your life that you can't get under control, but you wish you could. Relationships that are falling apart and are very strained, and you don't seem to be able to do anything about that. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, I want to read this last verse. Uh, John 13, 17. Let's read this aloud. Now that you know the truth, how happy you will be if... Hold on. Rewind. Let's do that one more time. Now that you know the truth, happy are you if you will... I want you to be happy. Jesus wants you to be happy. He tells you how to be happy here. Happy, happy, happy. Put it into practice. Don't worry. Be happy. How do you do that? By putting this first attitude, being humble, into practice. Now ask yourself a question. Where do I need to practice humility this week? Maybe some of you right now are in that Mexican standoff with your spouse. She's ticked you off. You've ticked her off. You've been inconsiderate, insensitive, whatever. You know, we've been all been there and you're just not talking. Well, you're talking, but you're really not talking, if you know what I mean. You're saying the words, but you're not emotionally connected. You've, the old ice has gone up. That wall's gone up. 
What would that mean to you this week to practice this attitude of humility? Tell you what will happen. You do this. Your stress will go down and your happiness will go up. If you practice these things. But if you come here today and you resist the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you about certain things now and you say, no, I'm not going to do that, then you will reap the results of that. I hope you choose the right thing. Where do I need to depend upon God more this week? Are the questions you have about your future? And you're try- wearing yourself out trying to work it all out. God says, don't be lazy. Think through the options. But at the same time, he says, commit your way into the Lord. Man makes his plans, but God directs his paths. God, this is what I'm thinking. Would you please enlighten me? Because I can't see past the end of my nose. You can see all the way to the end of my days. Where do you want me to go at this juncture? What do you want me to do on this particular issue? Let's pray. Would you this morning as we're sitting here, pray this prayer in your heart. You may just want to say, God, I'm not making it. And you name the area in your life. Maybe it's with one of your kids. I'm not making it as a parent. Or as a partner or wife, husband, or maybe it's as a professional. And God, I need your help in my life. Would you say, Father, I need to decrease and you need to increase in my life. That's a deep desire of my heart. Would you say, Father, I admit my need for your power in every level of my life, not just some areas. To love more, to stand up for what's right more, to be on task more. I need your power and your guidance in every area of my life. And today, Lord, I humble myself before you. Lord, your word says to humble myself in the sight of you. It also reminds us, Lord, that you resist the proud, but you give grace so abundantly to the humble. And Father, I need your grace. You also clearly say that, Father, before honor is humility. So when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. Give us the power to do what you've called us to do, Lord. Now, is there an area of your life that you're trying to get control of and it's just flat out of control? Would you say, God, I admit this is not working. And I need your help in every area of my life, especially in this one. My Father, I thank you for your word. And I look forward to this series that you wrote on happiness with anticipation. This is the very first foundational principle of realizing we need you in every area of our lives. And I pray that each of us would sense your presence starting to work in our life today. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.